Well, as we mentioned before, today is a special Sunday where we have ordained and installed deacons. And I thought with this being a service that uh, deals with the deacons specifically, it might be appropriate to focus on the fact that we are all called, in addition to the deacons, just like Hal mentioned before, to be servants, to be those who serve the body of Christ. That's where the word uh, deacon comes from. It's a, it's a Greek word. It actually is in our text today, which is Hebrews 6, 9 through 12. It speaks of serving the saints. And that word serving, there's diakonuntis. Uh, we get our word diaconate or deacon from that. And so we see in this text a picture of how we are to serve, but we need to remember it is not just the deacons who are to serve, but all of us. So please follow along now as I read from today's text from the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, verses 9 through 12. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for its promises, for its instructions, for its truths. We pray that you would, through the preaching of your word, just further take root in our hearts so that our faith might flourish by your guidance, that we might live lives that are glorifying to you, lives of service to the body of Christ for your sake. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I I can't look into each one of your minds. I suppose there's any number of reasons that you might be here today. Some of you are here because you're being ordained and installed as deacons. I hope that's not the only reason you're here if you are being ordained and installed. But that's, that's part of the reason anyway. Others might be here just visiting, checking us out, not sure what this whole church thing is, is all about, and just wanted to kind of sit in and, and see what's going on. And if that's the case with you, then we welcome you here. We're glad to have you visiting with us here this morning. Uh, perhaps you're here this morning because, well, that's what you do on a Sunday morning is you go to church and it's just kind of a habit. It's, it's just the Sunday morning fair. So on Sunday morning, I wake up, I go to church and, and that's what it is. That, that for some of us might be the case. I hope that that's not all when it comes to why we're here. Most of us, I hope, are here because we love God. I hope that's what drew most of us to this place on this morning. And and if you are among those who love God, I have a question for you this morning. What is the best way for you to demonstrate your love for God? What is the best way to show God that you love him. Well, 
going to church is, is certainly one thing that we ought to be doing, and, and I suppose that could be one answer. Hebrews 10 tells us that we're not to neglect the gathering together uh, in worship, and so, so that's certainly one thing we can do. Uh, spiritual disciplines, prayer and, and God's word, getting into it, studying it, memorizing it, are other things. And, and certainly, uh, in First Thessalonians, we, we read how we are to pray without ceasing. And throughout the Psalms, we read about hiding God's word in our heart. And so these are definitely things that God wants of us in ways that we can show our love for him. Ultimately, though, I think that, that we look at the fact that we are to keep his commandments. He says in 1 John chapter 5, love God and obey his commandments. And in John 15, Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. It's pretty straightforward, pretty simple. But there's a problem involved in that, isn't there? Because even the most godly of us, the the most spiritual, the, the most obedient of us, have all fallen woefully short and failed to love God in this way. And even if we did, let's just imagine for a second, and this is hard for us to even imagine because we fall so far short, but let's imagine that we did everything that God commanded. Every, Every requirement that's levied upon us, we met. We did everything we were supposed to do. We didn't do anything we weren't supposed to do. Let's imagine that's where we were. Knowing our human nature, I am quite certain in my case anyway, if I did that, I would be pretty proud of myself. And I would think I had really gained God's pleasure and earned it and that, that, that I was something special. Yet Jesus tells us in Luke 17 that, that even if you have done all that you have commanded, you should say, we are unworthy servants for we have only done our duty. You see, we, we need to break this mindset that says we can somehow earn God's pleasure. We can somehow earn God's favor through the working out of the law, through doing works, through, through showing up at church, through reading our Bible, through, through doing all kinds of things. Now, certainly those are good things. We should be doing them. But to think we can earn God's pleasure somehow by doing them, that, that he... He is pleased with us because of that, and and he'll show his favor because of that, is to take credit for something that we do not deserve credit for. The way we earn God's favor, the way we gain God's favor, is not through earning it at all, but rather through faith in Christ Jesus, the one who did keep the law perfectly, the one who loved God perfectly, and the one who died for our sins, the one who went to Calvary's cross, and who gave his life as a ransom for many, as we read before. The one who paid the penalty that we have all incurred, every one of us, for there is none of us who is perfect, and any want of conformity to God's law is sin and renders us deserving of condemnation. So each of us are in the same situation. I've used the illustration before. Let's let's say you're trying to jump across the Grand Canyon. Now, there's not one of us who could do that. 
There are some of us who are more athletic than others, and perhaps there are some who who are uh, the greatest long jumpers in the world. But the greatest long jumpers in the world, as they try to jump across the Grand Canyon, end up in the same state. I'm not very athletic. I can't jump very far. But, but the greatest long jumper in the world and I end up in the same place at the bottom of the canyon. It really doesn't matter. So it is with, with our personal holiness. Some of us live lives that look basically good from the outside. If, if we compared them to the lives of everybody else, we'd say, wow, what a, what a righteous person. Others live lives of complete and utter depravity and sin. And there's almost no good in us whatsoever. Apart from Christ, I promise you this, we both end up in the same place. It is only through Christ and his death on the cross and our faith in that payment for our sins that we can have salvation. You see, the gospel is not about what we can do. The gospel is about what Christ has done. And we need to remember that fact. What Christ has done is what's most important. So even though we are each sinners, even though each one of us deserves nothing but condemnation, because of the gospel, salvation is the destiny of each believer. What a wonderful truth. Salvation is the destiny of each believer. And in verse 9 here it talks about it. It says, while some are destined for condemnation, we can be sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. Now, now, salvation is the destiny of each believer. And he's speaking here. He, he uses the term beloved in addressing the people he's speaking to. And, and I wonder, when I looked at this, well, who exactly would be the beloved that he's talking about here? And it is, it is of course, the beloved of God, his children, those whom he has adopted and made his children. Those are the ones who are, who are the recipients of his love. This term beloved is a term of special affection. It is not one that's just thrown about willy-nilly. It's one uh, of goodwill and, and the closest of relationships. And, and it demonstrates the kind of love that a father has for his child. I've shared before the, the fact that I try to, to just really uh, uh, teach my children over and over and over again the fact that I love them not for what they do, not for how they behave, not for anything else that they control. But I try to love, I love them for the fact that they are my children. And so there's nothing that they can do that will change that. And so I reassure them of that fact all the time, that my love is not conditioned upon their behavior. My love is conditioned on the fact that they are my children and they will always be And so they will always, always, always have my love. And so it is with God with his children. We will always, if we are his children, adopted by him through faith in Christ Jesus, we will always have his love. And that's why the author here can say that he is sure of better things. The the New King James renders it confident, but I think that that's not a strong enough rendering of, of the Greek word that stands behind it. The idea is not just being confident. We can be confident of things all the time. We can be even sure of things without any basis. But the idea here is, is of being persuaded, of having a reason to be confident, having a reason to be sure of their salvation. 
Are you sure of your salvation? As you sit here this day, I ask you, are you sure of your salvation? If so, on what account? Is it because of all the works that you have done? Is that why you think that you have salvation? If that's it, then, then what's the question? How, have I ever, how could I ever be sure that I've served enough if that's the basis of my salvation? How, how can I be sure that it's not just a little bit more that's needed? Fortunately for us, the basis of our assuredness is not our service, but ultimately what matters is not our faithfulness, but God's faithfulness. His faithfulness to his promises, his faithfulness in the person of Christ Jesus to the law of God, his faithfulness leading him all the way to the cross. John Owen put it this way. He says, but on this supposition, his persuasion had another object, namely the righteousness of God in the stability of his promises, whence he had infallible assurance, or did conclude infallibly unto what he was persuaded of. What he's saying is essentially the same thing that Paul says to the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 6, where he says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. God, once he has adopted you as his child, will never let you go. Once he has begun the work of faith in you, it will never go away. If you are God's children held in his strong grasp, there is none who can pluck you from his hand. And what a wonderful truth that is. It is not our good deeds that ultimately matter the most, but God's faithfulness. So does the gospel then mean that we shouldn't bother doing good deeds? Uh, What's the point, right? If God is going to love us because we're his children, what's the point of doing good deeds? Of course not. Because of the gospel, service is the lifestyle of the believer. Because of the gospel, service is the lifestyle of the believer. That's why we see in verse 10 here, it talks about the work that we do now. This can be a little confusing, I understand. And so we need to make sure that we understand this. It might be natural to take the meaning of this here where it says, God is not so unjust to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake. It sounds almost like he's saying, wait, I, you know, that God is going to reward us for what we've done and, and that that's the basis of the reward is this work we've done, this love we've shown him. But if that's what we mean by God's justice, then we have a problem. <laughs> I assure you, if, if God's justice just means that we will be rewarded and get what we deserve, then we ought to pray that God is unjust because we need far better than what we deserve. We need grace. We need grace in the person of Christ Jesus. And so we see that God's justice is much more than that. We deserve nothing but his condemnation, and yet we get his mercy. We get his mercy. 
So why is it then that it says he will not forget the good deeds that you've done for his sake? Well, it's because of what is said in Galatians 2, verse 20. When Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. A.W. Pink puts it this way. He says, what God rewards is only what he himself has wrought in us. It is the Father's recognition of the Spirit's fruit. You see, there's no room for pride in this, in any of the good works that we've done. There's really nothing that we've earned. I'm reminded of, of one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, where, where we read that, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God so that no one may boast. And we, we, we memorize that, that, that God gives us this gift of salvation, this gift of faith, and, and this is ours. But then we think that, even if we don't think it out loud, in our subconscious almost we think that, so, so since we've gotten this gift, we, now we go out and we work hard and we do that and that's our part and that's all us. But nothing could be further from the truth because the very next verse says, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. God prepared these works beforehand for us. And so what we see is God working through us to do works that he prepared beforehand for his glory. There is nothing about us in this whole process. It is God who is the center, God who is the beginning, and God who is the end. And so we have no room for being prideful, but rather we need to be humble even as we serve, even as we work. It's almost as if somebody came up to you, a friend one day came up to you and said, you know, I've got some extra money here, here's, here's $100, and just gave you $100. Turned around and walked away. But then, after taking a couple steps, he stopped and said, oh, wait, wait, I just remembered. I, 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 need, I need a dollar. Can, can I borrow one? Well, well, who among us would have the audacity, the gall, to say, nope, sorry, my money, it's mine, it's in my pocket. No way am I lending you a dollar. He had just given us a hundred. Of course we would be more than happy to lend him a dollar. After all, it, it wasn't really our money in the first place, was it? It was his money given to us. And so it is with our service, our works of service for God's glory. They, they aren't our own works, they're the works that he is doing through us. We need to remember that that is not anything that we do. It is God who does it through us. We need to not be looking primarily to doing deeds as a means of impressing God. The story is told of, of John Bunyan who, who, who wrote... Pilgrim's Progress, and he, he was a nonconformist pastor in England and thrown in jail, and while he was in jail with other nonconformist pastors, they would have theological discussions one with another, and, and Bunyan was a preacher of God's grace, and, and many of the other pastors that were there in jail with him would, would tell him, don't you see that, that if you continually assure people that they have God's approval and God's love apart from any works. They will just go on doing whatever they want. 
And Bunyan responded, no. For if we, approve, if we assure God's people that they have his approval apart from any works, then they will do what God wants. And that must be the way we live our lives. We must live our lives not seeking to earn God's approval by our works, but, but relishing the fact that we have his approval. That, that if we are found in Christ, we have his approval, we have his love, we are his children, and we live out lives of service and love out of that. We love because he first loved us. And we serve the saints, as it says here. When I say the saints, we're, sometimes we think of saints, we think of the super spiritual people. And, and that, that's a, a wrong understanding of it. When we talk about the saints, we're talking about those who are Christians. If you are a Christian, you are a saint. That's because Christ has made you holy. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. For our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, Christ not only pays the penalty for our sin, he not only takes that penalty upon his back, but the righteous life that he lived out throughout his 30 plus years is credited to us so that in the eyes of God, we are perfectly holy. And so we are saints, every one of us. Much is made in the New Testament of the directions of Christians to love one another. Perhaps there's nothing more frequently told to Christians that they need to do. No duty that needs to be so readily discharged. The song had it right. They'll know we are Christians by our love. Owen also said, and whatever we have beside this love, our apostle declares it is nothing or of no use in the church of God. And the greatest evidence of the degeneracy of Christianity in the world consists in the open loss of this love among those who make profession thereof. Do you hear what he says? He says the greatest loss, the greatest evidence of, of, of the degeneracy, of the wearing down, of the disappearing of Christianity, of it crumbling, is not sagging church roles. It's not decreasing church offerings. It's not a lack of church programs. The greatest evidence of the church experiencing crumbling is the breaking down of these loving relationships among its members. These relationships that aren't based on what did you do for me or even what did you do to me, but rather based on the fact that we are to love one another as Christ has loved us. This isn't the same kind of love we show to all of our neighbors. We are called to love all our neighbors. We're even called to love our enemies. But this is a special love I'm talking about. The love of a family. 
the love that we share for one another because we are jointly united with Christ by his spirit. This is the kind of love I'm talking about, the kind of family love you have. Certainly, we all have people in our families that, that maybe are a little bit different, maybe a little bit odd, maybe not the person we would first choose to be around. Perhaps we have people in our families that we don't even like. They're just not very nice people. But we are called, even when we don't like these people, to love these people because they're members of our family. And so it is with the body of Christ. We are called to love one another actively, even when we do not like one another. And as we love one another actively, we will serve one another. This is not just something that needs to have been done at some time in the past. Notice he says in verse 10, something you still do. There is an ongoing nature to this. I think this speaks against something that I've heard at times. You know, I, I, I did my time. I paid my dues. I served in the past, and now it's somebody else's turn. To that, the Bible says no. We are all to serve always. Now, the way we serve certainly might look differently, depending on what capabilities we have physically, what time constraints we have on ourselves. There's all kinds of things that can factor into that. But not one of us who is a member of the family of God has the option of punching the clock and then punching out. We are to serve the body always. Not just so that we can get lots of things done around the church, but because we see here in verse 11, he desires that each one show the same earnestness so that they might have the full assurance of hope until the end. So that you might not be sluggish in verse 12. Now, I need to make it very clear here one more time. I'm not saying that doing this work enables you to to say, oh, I've earned this blessing now. Not even saying that, that, well, if you do this work, that proves that you are a Christian. But, But I am saying this. If you don't have this love in your heart, if if you don't have this desire to serve the body of Christ, I ask you, why not? Have you not experienced the grace of God? Have you not experienced his love for you? 1 John 3 says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. We love the brethren. Even, even when they're unlovely, we love the brethren. For when we were unlovely, Christ loved us. He didn't look down and say, oh, won't I be lucky if I can get these guys on my team? No. He found us as we were and took us as his own so that he might make us lovely in his sight. And so it is that through faith and patience we inherit the promises. Which promises are these? The promises of God that you will be my people and I will be your God. 
that I will never leave you nor forsake you. And that as far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your sins from you. These are the promises that we inherit. I opened my sermon asking how it is that we best show our love for God. And I want to close with the example of one who loved God the best, of course, Christ Jesus. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus met with his disciples in the upper room. And as he met with them there, he met with a group that included Thomas, who would later doubt him, Peter, who would later deny him, and Judas, who that very night would betray him. And what did Jesus do with this group? He took a towel, wrapped it around his waist, took a basin of water, and went from man to man, performing the most menial of tasks imaginable. He washed their feet. He washed the disciples' feet, and in that he washed Thomas's feet, and he washed Peter's feet, and he even washed Judas's feet. And later that night he said, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And he says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. As we look at our own lives and as the world looks in at our lives may it be sure to us and sure to others that we truly are Christ's disciples let us pray Heavenly Father we thank you that you have loved us though we were unlovely we pray that you would indeed strengthen us and so indwell us that we would be able to likewise love all those who are members of your family, not considering how it affects us directly, how it makes us feel, or what we think we deserve, but rather living only and always for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please join me now in our closing hymn.